We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have an exciting guest this week, a different kind of guest. He has just, uh, as this, when this episode is released on this day, his first book will be published. Um, it is a chess memoir of sorts. Um, he describes this author, Sasha Chapin, describes it on his website as a memoir about how he traveled around the world for two years playing chess badly in a number of exotic locations like Hyderabad, Bangkok, and St. Louis. It's also about his love life and about the larger question of what you do when you force your passion upon the world and the world responds with complete indifference. And in, I've, I've been reading the book and I greatly enjoyed it, so I am happy to have uh, this 31-year-old writer from Toronto joining us. Sasha, thanks for coming on the show. Ben, thanks so much for having me. And as I was saying moments ago, I mean, I feel like the first order of business, Sasha, is just to congratulate you. I mean, a major feather in your cap, 31 years old, to have to have, um, to have have a book published. So 
Um, and I know you, you'd had some, some, as you say, minor acclaim in the past. I don't know how minor it is, but you, uh, it's still a major step to get a book published. So how does one get a chess memoir published, Sasha? Um, it was a very roundabout process. So I wrote an article about losing a chess tournament in Bangkok, um, which is something that happens in the books very early stages. And I didn't think anyone would read it, but evidently some people found it relatable. I think because of the larger theme of loving something and trying to do it well, despite a lack of personal talent. And basically at around that time, my agent was trying to get me to produce a book proposal and I couldn't give her a book proposal because all I was doing was playing chess and studying chess. Um, at the end of the original article, I claimed that I was quitting chess permanently and that did not happen. So she said, well, why don't you just write a chess book? And so at that time I was already sort of planning to go around the world and, and play chess and study a little bit. And so on the back of that article, I got a publishing contract for the book. Awesome. And what did that feel like? It felt incredible. It felt scary. Um, to that date, most of my chess career, so to speak, had been private, um, including all of its embarrassments. So I knew that I was going to have to delve deeply into my own inadequacies in public, which is not um, a pleasant prospect in all regards. At the same time, like it had been my dream since I don't know, 12 years old to get a book published. So obviously there was some ecstasy um, nestled among the fear of failure and uh, the fear of exposure. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it must be an interesting feeling because I, I imagine that were the feelings of inadequacy uh, centered around your chess playing or your writing or both equally? I would say both. Um, and just my character in general. It's a memoir, and I think if you write an adequate memoir, unless you're an incredibly competent person, which I am not, there's going to be some accounting for your own failures. So um, I was noticing my inadequacies in a new way, in some ways to chart them um, for a general readership. Okay, yeah, and I... You know, just to, to give listeners a little more background, since they, um, I think some of our listeners will be excited to read this book, but they most likely have not yet. Uh, you are very open in the book, speaking of your inadequacies. Um, your words, not mine. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. you know, you mentioned that, that you, you've been diagnosed as bipolar and that you were um, not, you say something along the lines of uh, rightfully not popular when you were in school and stuff like that. So very self-effacing and makes you very relatable as the, the sort of hero of the book. Um, so once you got the book deal, Sasha, uh, you, you know, you've already taken this trip to Thailand, but, uh, you know, you also travel other places. So what was the next step in terms of, uh, you know, turning this, um, this passion and this book deal into a, you know, coherent, uh, enjoyable book? Well, the most important part in the next step and then the step after that and the step after that was just studying and playing chess all the time. Uh, and I was taking notes and writing little bits as I went along, but I tried not to think too much about coherence. I just mapped the experiences and there were a, a, a huge number of experiences. I mean, I, I played, I think, about five times more chess tournaments than 
then made it into the book. And there were just hours and hours of study that didn't yield anything remarkable. But I didn't know that at the time. So I just dived into it and um, didn't try to limit myself too much in terms of what I what I noticed along the way. And then afterwards, it became this process of compression, distilling down all those experiences. But um, that was very much after the fact, achieving coherence. Okay. Yeah, I didn't. I, I guess it makes sense that you had played more tournaments than are covered in, in the book, but I hadn't thought about that. So um, when did you get the book deal? Um, I'm very bad at accounting for time and space. Um, <laughs> I got it um, in terms of the timeline of the book. So it begins with me decamping to um, Bangkok, where I end up through a number of unusual events, um, joining the chess club there. And I returned home after that. And then that was in spring. And then all throughout summer and winter, I just couldn't stop playing chess at any time. And I secured the book deal sometime that winter, which in the book is just before I, I launch into my demanding tournament schedule. Okay, so I think we're talking maybe two years ago. It's yeah. starting. Okay, yeah, that that makes sense. So really, um, kind of a compressed amount of time. But I guess, as you say, you were fully immersed in it. Um, and and for listeners, I mean, I just want to say that in by my reading, he he kind of, Sasha does a good job getting the the culture of chess broadly right. And when he describes characters like your favorite player Vasily Ivanchuk. And um, this, I'm going to give a small spoiler here, but I mean, I think this will make people more inclined to read it, not less inclined, but like, you know, I know Ben Feingold personally a little bit. He's been on the show a couple of times. And of course, he's an outsized character in the chess world, but you kind of just spring it on the reader that he just appears. He's not, it's not teased. And then boom, he's a major character and a very entertaining one at that. And, you know, when you, when you, um, describe other players like Kasparov and so on and so forth. Um, you, you, you do a good job painting, um, painting it accurately to the enthusiastic chess player, like our listeners eyes, but also in a way that the outsider can read. So how, how did you, how did you go about that? How did you, um, how much work did it take to describe players in, in a way that it was accessible for sort of, uh, a broad audience? Honestly, it didn't take that much work, or rather it didn't take um, more work, I think, than describing anything else for me. I mean, this was my life for a long time, right? And being a memoirist and a writer, I go about summarizing things in my mind generally. So um, if anything, it was a process of limitation, right? Like I have hundreds, maybe thousands of words to say about Ivan Chuck or other players have been obsessed with um, Morozevich is another one who yeah. isn't mentioned in the book. He's a fan um, favorite. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. For, for so many reasons. Um, so in a way it was like, well, what's the, how can I get these people across in, in three sentences? Yeah. Well, well you do a good job and, and Sasha, we might as well, we had talked about doing this, so we're going to go NPR style and have you read an actual excerpt. Usually I'm interviewing authors who've written, um, you know, how to get better at chess books, occasionally opening books. And those don't, don't lend themselves as much to reading excerpts, but I feel like this one is well suited for it. So um, do you mind reading uh, the um, very beginning of the book? Not at all. I would love to. So this is the preface. It's entitled The 600 Million. 
Perhaps the surest sign that you're in love is that you can't stop talking. You find yourself announcing the name of your beloved at the slightest provocation. Given any opportunity, you engage in a vain attempt to explain your infatuation. Everything else seems unworthy of a single moment's attention or discussion. No matter how shy or stoic you are, real affection demands expression. And this is no less true when the object of your affection is the game of chess. In other words, when you are me. Excellent. Yeah, and away we go. I mean, it's just a, a fun read from there. A fairly quick read. Um, I mean, honestly, you say you say you did a lot of editing, as uh, you know any good writer would do, or there was a lot of editing done. But the, I would have been happy if there was more in the book. Um, so once you you know you you're having these experiences, you're you're immersing yourself in chess. You're also living your life. You know, obviously, you talk about relationships um, and you know finding finding a girlfriend during the course of the book, um, and you know balancing that with your chess. Um, so. How so? You mentioned you're you're writing more than crafting a book, but I mean, then, but at what point do you start to think about, um, you know, needing a narrative arc? Um, first of all, I just want to say two girlfriends. Um, <laughs> yes, that's true. Not to toot my own horn, but just um, <laughs> if either Courtney or Catherine or both is listening, I don't want either to feel left out. Um, um how did I think about a narrative? Well. Yeah, in a sense, it's something that I had to rescue from life afterwards, um, which I think is true sort of of anyone, right? Like our day-to-day experience contains so many little events, and it's only really afterwards that you figure out how to tell the story of what's going on. Um, I had to try and make the book. The main challenge with the book was making it making it relatable to the non-chess player. And so there are lots of elements of a chess narrative that would be relative to a chess player like, oh, I don't know, a brief flirtation with the Queen D8 Scandinavian, thanks mm-hmm. to the videos of John Bartholomew, nice. right? Yeah. That might be relatable to you, but that wouldn't be to the to the um, general public. So it was just a question of sort of watching myself and seeing what themes emerged and then based on those themes, what parts of the chess journey I could include. Um, so you had to cut out Team Scandi from, from the pros. Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. Even though for, for some time I was a, a, a dedicated member of Team Scandi. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, again, you did, a, you did a good job. And it sounds like, I mean, you, as you say, you really immersed yourself. And you mentioned uh, some of the online videos. I like the part um, where you introduced Feingold by kind of um, mentioning... That some of the other presenters um, that that you found online uh, were, you know, Feingold's got a tone of his own. I mean, he's he's so much more sarcastic and can can be cut, cutting at times, but but that's why he's. Um, I feel like eighty percent of people love him and then twenty percent of people despise him, which gener- sure. generally is a good business model. <laughs> um, so, um, what other what other presenters and uh, I mean, of course, we're gonna. I'd like to talk about chess literature as well but what other resources did you find yourself drawn to besides uh ben feingold's videos and and the aforementioned john bartholomew oh so many i mean i've spent hours and hours a day uh looking at youtube and and reading articles um 
to my detriment, I think, because there were other things I should have been focusing on as a player, um, which is one of the things Feingold taught me. Maybe we can talk about that in a little bit, but um, none of this is to say the videos were bad, just that they weren't the most important part of my learning process. Um, that said, the whole St. Louis gang, uh, obviously, um, impressive lectures, all uh, Kobe and uh, Sarah Wan, who I had the pleasure of meeting, um, who's a wonderful person. Um, Eric Hansen's work, uh, streamers like him, Eric Rosen, uh, the Chess 24 team, Sviddler, of course, um, basically anything that Sviddler uh, laid his hands on, I consumed, um, including his Hearthstone streaming. Uh, <laughs> Funny, yeah. <laughs> because I thought, well, if I if I hear more hours of Peter Fiddler talking, perhaps I will absorb some of his essence. I'm obviously a fan of him as as a player as well as um, as a personality. Um, so, really, the question that's relevant here is what what didn't I consume? Okay. I, I read books. I was a pretty voracious. Um, consumer of the literature. Yeah, I mean, I think Sasha. For anyone who had doubts, your your street cred with uh with our listeners just skyrocketed. Between uh, I mean, you 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 highlighted a lot of the the rightfully most popular streamers, and Peter Sfidler in particular, I think has has a special place in the eyes of a lot of chess fans. Um, just because he's you know so strong, but so relatable somehow. Um, yeah. His his strength as a commentator is he manages to take the emanations of his brain, um, which are numerous and come at a fast pace, and, and make them sort of folksy and understandable. I mean, I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a video of him and Magnus um, reviewing a, a game, a very interesting draw that they played from Tata Steel. And when you see Sfiddler talking to Magnus, just those two guys hanging out, you realize how much Sviddler is holding back. And that's what makes him brilliant is he can walk the line between showing us what a super grandmaster thinks, but making it understandable. Yeah, for sure. I have seen that video and I'll, I'll link to it in the show description. I think um, a lot of people will have seen it. It's it's kind of hard for me at least to make out what they're saying. But I mean, you could just see their love for chess and it's like right after the game ended. You know, I mean, it's just like that's, you know, that's one thing that that it, that I, you know, a lot of people find appealing about chess is that search for truth that even for the best players, that, that curiosity never goes away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The way they just in a flash arrange position after position and go into long hypothetical lines that they'd both seen and both evaluated on their own. It's, it's really breathtaking and at the same time kind of discouraging, right? Because you're like, wow, whatever material, composes these guys brains um might not be the same material in my own skull but yes. that's okay yeah <laughs> i definitely know that feeling um so you mentioned you you got deep in the chess literature too so with basically every guest sasha i asked for for book recommendations i mean it sounds like i don't know with all the videos you were watching i don't know how much time you had for books but did you have any favorite uh chess books that you read during this uh period of obsession okay so Yes. I feel that I should preface any recommendations with a disclaimer, which is that at my level, um, with what I needed to improve, I'm not actually sure that any of the chess books I read did me any good, um, other than maybe small lessons I distilled here and there. 
Um, the can, one I would sorry, single can I just out. Jump in, and we'll we'll get right back to that. Sorry, Sasha, but I realized I should have mentioned earlier that I I did check a USCF rating. You you're still provisionally rated after about twenty games, but it was like uh, in the fourteen hundreds. Although you you know you had some good results against like nineteen hundred in in LA, so um, you know it, it. I have a sense that you might be a bit stronger than that, but it's in that ballpark. Um, just in case listeners were wondering, but sorry sorry to cut you off. Please continue. Yeah, no worries. I think I started out um, at roughly a fourteen hundred level, and thanks largely to Ben Feingold's personal instruction. By the end of the book, I was achieving decent results against two thousand rated players, um, which is which quite is, impressive. Yeah, yeah, it's an improvement I wasn't expecting, um, and I don't know that any of that improvement came from books. I'm sorry to say, which is not to say that I think chess books are useless or anything obviously that's not the case just that maybe a 1400 player shouldn't necessarily go to books first and and to reach for sort of theoretical knowledge uh that said i mean my system is a very lucid uh book um because just nimzovich was such a such a great mind i was reading it for prose as well as chess ideas um and he is a a very uh witty writer um in his way uh, relative to other chess books, um, mm. Chess for Zebras uh, ah. was a was a great book for me um, yeah. in terms of sort of snapping me out of ways I'd been um, looking at the game. Um, his emphasis on well, de-emphasizing rules and sort of received wisdom about what you should do in the board, and just sort of staying in the moment in a position um, and looking at the immediate sort of tactical implications um of, of of what's going on i mean that's that's one of many parts of what is a nuanced and and multifaceted book i would recommend that book yeah jonathan rosen is another crowd favorite i mean i love his i love his writing yeah um he's got a book coming out um although it's not not strictly it's more interweaving chess and life philosophy sort of thing but i'll i'll read anything that that guy writes so yeah uh, I'm excited for that. Um, yeah, so you mentioned that you feel like books are not the best way to learn. And of course, we, we, we will tease but not reveal that Ben Feingold actually told you the secret to chess um, in the, in, uh, within the text of the book. Um, so what did you find to be actually, and I should, this kind of ties in with one of uh, the questions submitted by a Patreon supporter. So I'll just go ahead and ask mm-hmm. this question. And I will tell you that Dan O'Hanlon, friend and supporter of the podcast, also, along with our other guest question, which we'll get to later, they both told me they pre-ordered the book. So, Sasha, you've sold at least two books, I'm happy to report. Okay, uh, great. Great. And, uh, at least two. That's yes. good. That's more than some people sell. Um, thank you, Dan. Thank you, Greg. Okay. And here's Dan, Dan O'Hanlon's question, which is, what helped you the most to get better at chess? So, I would say the totality of Feinwald's teaching. Um really uh, helped me make um, a big leap forward. And I will say that what Feingold tells you when you're in the room with him is different than what he says in the videos. He has a persona in the videos that is very entertaining and that is very enlightening, um, or rather the remarks that persona makes um, are very enlightening. But he has different things to say to an individual student of my level. And 
um, I don't want to give all of it away. And I also don't want to um, prattle on about this for too long. But I think his overall point a lot of the time was that I'm a beginner, right? And so when I look at chess, my instinct is to say, well, how do I play like Morphy? How do I play like Carlson? How do I play like Polgar? How do I take um, these great grandmasters and sort of reverse engineer what they're doing? And Feingold's point was that that's not only a waste of time, but that that's um, uh, perhaps um, deleterious to, to my play because like, what I should be focusing on is what happens in the board in my games. And what that is mostly, if you're a 1,400 player, is, is blundering, right? So he said, look, like, just don't lose all your pieces. Right. If you just don't blunder, um, then you'll be a 2,000-rated player in, mo- in, in no time. Because most 1,400 players who are like fans of the game have absorbed a lot of knowledge about whether it's positional play or tactics. Our problem is just that we screw up a lot um, in dramatic and obvious ways. He said something that always stuck with me, which is that if you are, are playing Magnus Carlsen and you make 20 random moves and then for some reason Magnus Carlsen blunders his queen, you might beat Magnus Carlsen, right? Like the most important thing is blundering 90% of the time at my level. So check check your ego just don't blunder your pieces and you'll be fine. And that advice was extraordinarily helpful. Yeah, it really, really resonates uh, as um, I'm also a chess teacher, not, you know, um, no Ben Feingold, but I do the best I can. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's really true. And it's something that I mean, he has a way of distilling it both in just the way that you encapsulated it here. And some of the some of the quotes in the book are uh, quite memorable and really drive the point home effectively. Um, so how how do you stop blundering, though, is probably the, the, the big follow on question. It's no big mystery. Uh, things that other people have said before um, about this um, that are very common, like look at all forcing moves, look at all checks, look at all captures, um, look at all of unprotected pieces, like every single move. Resist the idea as a beginning player that you understand what's going on in the position because chances are either you don't or your understanding might um disperse very quickly as you get distracted by your own plans and your opponent's plans so just sort of like always make sure your seatbelt is fashioned fastened essentially um that's that's kind of the long and short of it fine gold told me something that he might have said on in during one of the videos he said that um for most players there are two reasons they lose all their pieces um those two reasons are called the third rank and the fourth rank um so just making sure that your pieces aren't aren't placed in harm's way and emphasizing caution and awareness over ambition on the board. Okay, and when you when you play online, um first of all, what's what's your time control of choice during your your online chess addiction? I I I mean I don't play much anymore, but um typically I would play 5-minute blitz or um longer games. I'm very slow. Um that's one of my biggest issues of many um so i always preferred the five minute i would play bullet once in a while just to entertain myself um with an opportunity to click my mouse really quickly <laughs> right um, yeah but not much came of it yeah i mean even blitz i feel like at the lower levels it can be it can be hard it, it can be a double-edged sword 
Um, because as you say, if you're generally very methodical and, you know, in order to sort of develop the right thought patterns, it might be helpful to be methodical. Um, but then it's fun. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's hard to find the right balance. So when you were playing Blitz, did you feel like you were able to get better at limiting your blunders um, after working with Ben? To an extent, um, I saw more dramatic improvements in um, classical chess, uh, which, which was great. Um, I mean, one, I think, conflict that all chess players deal with is um, the tension between having fun and playing good chess. Um, so there were some days when I wanted to just have lots of fun and throw my pieces around, but ultimately my goal was, was um, playing better and uh, most of that difference occurred in classical chess, I think, because it's something I could approach more consciously. Uh, coming to it as an adult learner, you don't have a lot of that fluidity that um, you know players who started young can can bring to the game. It's not your native language uh, in a way. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good perspective and something that that a lot of us have to grapple with. I mean, uh, even even if you learned it as a kid, like the push to get better as an adult just becomes um, like pushing a boulder uphill, just a, just constant challenge, doable, but a constant challenge. Yeah. Uh, when did you pick up uh, the game? Tell me about your, your saga as a learner. Uh, I started when I was 12, um, which these days is considered late. Not so much. I'm i uh, I'm 42. So at that, at that time, this, you know, 1989 or something, this mm-hmm. would have been, um, it was, maybe moderately late but and then i just had a very active school chess club and i had um i went to school with with the shahadis so so, um with greg and jen shahadi so Mm -hmm. i had like a strong chess network and other strong players that were working so i you know i played a lot during um junior high and high school and i studied on my own but it you know it wasn't i played baseball too it wasn't like total obsession um and then, uh, so I basically played throughout high school. And then when I got to college, it's just been sort of sporadic since then. And even though, even though I'm a chess teacher now, I'm not, um, and I love chess and I love the culture. I've kind of, at the, I have young kids and right now getting better isn't a priority. I mean, I feel like I'll probably become an active player again when my kids are older, but it'll, you know, it'll be an interesting experiment to see how I do with uh, getting better because I'm like, you know, 150 points off my peak rating, which is kind of depressing, but sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can blame your children for that. Yeah. I mean, um, I really can actually, I lost the rating points before they came along. So, but I can blame my children for making it a lot, a lot more, um, a lot more challenging, uh, to get them back. Right. So it's all and their I fault. mean, before your children were born, I assume um, some of your thoughts were occupied um, with your future of child rearing. So, right, I mean, yeah, exactly. Perhaps you should be more, um, uh, more creative in your approach to blaming your children for things. I think yes. there's a lot of grist for the mill there. It sounds like you're going to be a good father, Sasha. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so that's. Uh, briefly my chess story i mean i w- i would love to get better but you know and you i feel like uh i mean you're you're 31 you so uh, a little a bit younger than me but i feel like you have good perspective about how as you get older you start to feel that clock ticking and you start to say well you know i'm i'm like 2150 now and it's like 
if I got back in the chest, what I would really want is a new peak rating. And that's just so much work that <laughs> and I'm so far from it that in a sense, it's a deterrent. Um, because it's, yeah, it would be years of work and with not necessarily a payoff being that I was, I'm probably not, not going to be as sharp tactically as I was when I was 18 ever again. All right. This is getting depressing. Sure. I mean, the thing is like, it shouldn't have to be depressing, right? You and I, we both love the game of chess. We just love how the pieces move. We love how intricate it can be. We love how every game can be a different game. Um, even if the first 15 moves, uh, are familiar. So there's this question of like, why should we need to have a peak rating? Why can't we just like the game? But it's part of the culture because we follow these incredible players um, and we see what they do. And then we want to be like them at the same time as we just want to play a board game. So there is that tension. I think there is a possible world where people like you and I are satisfied just with the opportunity to play such a beautiful game uh, in so many settings. Yeah. But that's easier said than done. Yeah, I mean, that's generally where I've sort of ended up for now. I mean, I basically where I've ended up is that it's the tournament aspect that, you know, that's where my competitive instinct sort of kicks into overdrive. Um, if I'm playing Blitz online or I'm going out for drinks with, with chess player friends or something like that, like I, it's of course fun and I would just want to play chess. And I love, as I've said, I, I mean, obviously I have a chess podcast and so I love the history. I love the culture and that's something that will never go away. But, mm -hmm. but I mean, uh, once you're actually competing yourself, it's it's hard to separate the ego. Um, and yeah, it's something I may grapple with again, but I may not. Um, which And this kind of all feeds into the next question. So I mentioned Greg Natal. He's a um, supporter of the podcast. Um, he's I've mentioned him a couple times in previous episodes because just because he's shared his story a little bit. He's recently retired. He's in his early 60s. Um, and he's just gotten sort of bitten by the chess bug. Um, so he's really, I mean, he's, I mean, he'll, he'll talk about it a bit in the email, but just to give a bit more context, I mean, he suddenly has more time than he's had before and just, uh, consumed by the game, but, uh, therein, um, presents some challenges too. So this is what Greg says. Um, and, uh, Greg says, I look forward to the new book and I already ordered it. The title alone sums up how I'm feeling lately. I've never been to a tournament. Is this essential? I'm struggling to learn and I'm buying books and online courses trying to improve quickly. I have almost every book, Ben, that's me, not Ben Feingold, has spoken of around 300 volumes. I read general instruction and game collections for now, study tactics and play three-day games on chess.com. My problem is all ego. I hate feeling stupid and worry when someone seems to suddenly start making strong moves after they're blundering a piece. How can I reconcile my necessary losses in the learning process while managing self-anger over feeling stupid? Is tournament play better than online play and that you can see if someone is kind and respectful? My loss yesterday, someone chatted to me, you're going down, haha. <laughs> I feel like saying something rude back, instead I blocked them after the game. Um, so, lot to, lot to uh, chew on from there. Lot to unpack there. Um, I mean, there, yeah, there are a couple of questions. Um, you say in that, Greg, I will address you directly. Directly, um, You say, um, my problem is all ego. And I think you've identified it there, right? Like, you can look at um, a chess game as this sort of, like, heroic saga that implicates you personally and your core identity. So if you lose, it's reflective of some 
deep flow within you, or you can just see it as a series of moves. And at every juncture of the game, there's a couple of moves that are excellent, a couple of moves that are fine, and a whole group of moves that don't blunder. And as long as you play a move that's within those three groups, you're probably fine if you just do that over and over again. Um, and I would advise going to tournaments. The mental intensity of it is just sort of a wake-up call. Uh, as well, it's it's weird, but like if you've played online or on a computer mostly, um, it's actually kind of hard to see stuff on a chessboard. Do you find that? Uh, I'm uh, from the old school generation, so for me, it's it's if anything, it would be more the opposite. Um, right. Um, yeah, go to a tournament. The The culture is fascinating. Um, it's a very emotionally intense experience and, um, it will make you more aware of whatever your specific flaws are. Um, but yeah, like, like you, you know what you have to do. You said my problem is all ego. Um, in terms of online trash talking, uh, I have witnessed some online trash talking myself, um, as you will see, if you read the book, I am not always completely innocent in that process. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, chess isn't like a like a heroic story. It is. That's one way of looking at it. But if you just look at it as a series of moves, I think you might feel more at peace when you're playing. Yeah, and I, I mean, I have a couple things to add as well. Number one is I do think I do think people are nicer at tournaments. You'll. You'll encounter chess players for for all of their quirkiness. You'll you'll get a, you'll you'll understand why uh, some people are have so much anger inside them um, mm-hmm. that that you witness online when you go and play in person. But generally, people are very nice in person. So I don't know if it's the same people um, or if the if the people who are you know um, you know cursing at you in the chat room are they're just staying at home. But in any event, it's a different environment. Uh, you mentioned in the book a couple times uh, stronger players reviewing games with you. I mean, that's that alone generally is worth the price of admission. And um, it's I would say it's more common than not that when you lose a game, especially if it, there's time for it, if it's not like rapid time control, that that they'll, someone will offer to to review the game. And you know, we've had other guests when they talk about chess improvement talk about the importance of having peers. Um, it, sometimes it can be, as you talk about in the book, sometimes it can be hard to find people your age. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. But um, but it it can be good in that regard. So I would say at least as you, I'm just to echo what you said, at least try it out and evaluate from there. But yeah, why don't you, since it's come up, Sasha, why don't you talk a bit about what it was like? Because we've, um, it's come up before on this show, of course, but what is it? Uh, how did you deal with sort of the dichotomy of going to a tournament and seeing lots of younger kids and then some sort of uh, retiree age people, but not that many people uh, around your age? Yeah, I mean, that question, or at least the tone in which it was asked, um, a very kind tone, sort of implies that uh, I have lessons to give in this regard, that I dealt with it well, uh-huh. and that I could share with you um the psychological preparation um, that led to that state of inner equanimity. Um, the truth was that it was a continuous bitter disappointment to me, and it was alienating. And I don't think um, there's any way around that other than just to accept it, um, that there are hundreds of thousands, maybe, of children who can play chess better than I can. 
Um, it's hard, right? What you said about going to tournaments and, and, and making peers, um, is I think relevant, um, independent of the game of chess, it's just good to make friends and leave your house. Right. And so the one, the one thing I would say did gird me against that is making adult friends at, at tournaments. I went to, you know, I, I played around the world. Like I played in India, I played in Bangkok, I played in a couple of locations in the U S and I usually tried to find somebody to chat with who was an adult. So I wasn't just alone in a sea of, um, formidable children. Um, so I'd say that was, that was the one thing I could point out. Yeah. And, and Greg being a bit older, it actually, if anything, I think would be not quite as daunting for him. He will have to grapple with playing young kids as you and I do. Um, but there, as I mentioned in my sort of life station and that I hope to get back into it when my kids are older, I think that's a fairly common arc where, mm-hmm. um, so as you get towards your fifties and sixties, I do think that some people, um, as their time frees up a bit, uh, pick up the game again. So I, th- I think that it, there's a good chance that Greg can find um, uh, a study buddy or a friends um, or just, you know, just even if you don't spend that much time with the person, just uh, like a familiar face um, can, can be nice. Um, so another topic I have highlighted, and of course it's like uh, it's mentioned in, in the title of your book is the idea of addiction uh, with chess. Um, Mm -hmm. or actually, I guess it's not mentioned in the title, but, um, central theme of the book, I would say. So Mm -hmm. do you feel like there's a, I mean, you, you've mentioned you, you haven't played a tournament, um, recently, you're not playing much chess right now. You've, you've got, uh, a career building and you've got a book to promote and so on and so forth. But Mm -hmm. do you think there's a place for, for chess in moderation in, in your life? Or is that just not your personality? I don't know really my i do have what they call an addictive personality i tend to fixate and and burrow into things uh it has changed a little bit so i think what i was saying earlier about how you can look at an individual game as an epic struggle or just as a series of moves can also apply to the way you look at chess as a whole right i mean this book is a quest narrative um and it did feel like a quest I felt like there's this long and storied history of this board game, um, this beautiful tapestry, and I'm a little part of it. I'm generating a small piece of chess history, right? And there's another way to look at it, which is just that I was playing a fun game that's that's really hard, that I was never particularly good at, um, but that nevertheless brought me some enjoyment. And those are both reality-based perspectives that address the same group of facts, uh, and I think now that I've written this book and now that I've spent so much time on it and, and now that I've confronted my own failings as a player so much, I'm better at looking at it from a more grounded and, and humble perspective, which will perhaps make it easier for me to either not play chess or if I do play more chess in the future to uh, have a healthier and more contained way of looking at it. But talk to me in a few years. I don't really know yet. And there's some touring around this book I have to do. Presumably it's going to involve playing chess with somebody sooner or later. Yeah. So, one would think so. <laughs> one would think so. Hopefully you don't have to do any blindfold expo- exhibitions. Um, hopefully not. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't think I would have to, it might be entertaining, um, for other people. Um, 
but not for me. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, the, I, I was just curious. It's not, um, you know, it tends to be everyone's relationship, like any relationship, a relationship with chess ebbs and flows as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But um, it's, uh, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. Although I do think you're, I mean, I, I get that as a chess fan, you have to, uh, as you mentioned somewhere, I mean, one has to grapple with at some point, the fact that they're, they're probably not going to be a super grandmaster. Um, but I feel like your improvement was pretty good. I mean, you know, we do this series on this podcast. And in addition to to interviewing a lot of chess professionals, I interview um, I interview uh, club level players who've shown significant improvement as adults. Called the the Adult Improver series, and I mean, a lot of it would. I mean, it seems like you've with your provisional rating having been having been in the 1400s and the the results you showed at the LA Open i mean it's kind of it's too small a sample set to know for sure but i mean it seems like you made quite good progress for for um for picking for taking it on as an adult um so i mean you talked a little bit before about your study habits but um so and feingold sort of giving you the the right perspective but like when you were immersed in chess besides playing how much like how many hours a day do you think you were studying, Sasha? Um, depending on how much writing there was to do, one of the things I didn't include in the book, I feel like the book makes me seem like um, sort of a um, a globe-trotting, responsibility-free um, layabout. People might speculate that I'm, I'm I'm being supported by some sort of trust fund or something, but in fact, I was working full time at the same time. Uh, I was writing articles and, and doing commercial writing, copywriting, which is where um, most of my income comes from. So, um, depending on the day, I couldn't sink all of my hours into chess, but I would say anywhere from like three to eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it got pretty extreme. Uh, but I would say that I don't know that all of those hours were necessary. A lot of my studying was inefficient, and Feingold, I think, pointed me in in the right direction in a lot of ways. I would say that one of the selling points of this book that I genuinely believe in is that Feingold's lessons really were helpful, and the book doesn't give all of them away, but it gives you some of the essence of his teaching, which is really helpful for, for beginning players. He looks at the game from a, a psychological sort of person oriented, um, uh, direction that I think was refreshing and, and very helpful for me. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, as again, I've, I've hung out with him. I've watched his videos. So I'm, you know, I'm no, I, I know, Feingold personally, and I know his shtick, um, but I still found myself sort of nodding, nodding my head a lot to the things he said. And I agree that it, it sounds a little different than the stuff you would see in, in his lectures. Um, but I still want to help um, unpack a little more what what exactly. So in these 11 hours, um, how much of it is um, how much of it is playing online versus doing tactics and um, just in, ser- in terms of the, the concrete steps you took. Uh, in order to get to to get better, in order to implement the sort of uh, guidance that Feingold was giving you, um, yeah, a lot of it. A lot of it was tactics puzzles. Um, his emphasis on just not making not making clear blunders was um, most easily achieved through doing tactics puzzles and and noticing common themes and patterns. Um, but 
on the whole, I would say that it wasn't that systematic. I would sort of dip my toe into this thing and that thing. I'm not a very organized person. I don't have a very organized mind. So like I would watch uh, a banter blitz video with Peter Siddler and I'd see something he'd do in one of his games and it would inspire me and I'd play an online game and maybe something would go wrong in the online game and then I'd look into what went wrong and maybe whether there were any books that could um, address the issue for me and sort of I just ping-ponged around between different um, resources Um, but tactics puzzles were a big piece and I think they were perhaps in the end the most uh, essential piece okay Um, and did you use tactics trainers or certain books or both uh, there were no books for tactics Um, I'm not a I'm not a strong visual learner, which makes chess hard for me, but it's hard for me to internalize um, a diagram on paper. It's much easier if I can click on it and manipulate it. Um, Chess Tempo uh, was pretty much where I spent all of my time after experimenting with some other other, uh, sites. I would recommend Chess Tempo highly. Okay, good to know. Um, So... So it, now that you're done with chess, or at least on hiatus, I mean, I guess you're you're busy with the book tour. Oh, one question I had for you, um, and I just have a few more questions if you're up for it, Sasha. Is, sure. So when you reached out to Ben, I was, I mean, uh, it was like, an, as I mentioned before, is an exciting turn in the book, and the, but also exciting that you went to St. Louis. And I, I also, I mean, I didn't give it that much explicit thought about like, uh, you know, were you a trust fund baby or whatever, as you said, but I did wonder like, is there, is this part of sort of your book budget or like, is this like for the sake of the narrative? Because I was a little surprised that instead of just doing lessons online that you actually went and had this face-to-face encounter, which of course makes the book um, probably infinitely better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't write a better character than Ben Feingold if you're listening to this, Ben. Um, I tried to reach out to him, but um, he he dropped off Facebook, which is how I used to talk to him. So I tried to get a comment from him on you, but uh, it didn't didn't work out. Um, I'm sure, but I'm, I'm sure once the book comes out, have you been in touch with him? Like, uh, does he know this book is coming? He knows it's coming. Uh, I asked him for um, his permission um, when I was choosing what to include. I thought there might be a couple of things he said that he might find sort of controversial. He can come across as abrasive sometimes, although <laughs> in a very in a very humorous and, and good-natured way. And he just told me that I could use all of it, which was um, a great gift. Uh, we haven't, I don't think we've spoken since then. That was a couple of months ago. Um, Ben has a rich inner life and, you know, sometimes he communicates a lot online and sometimes he doesn't. And that is okay. I imagine we will converse in the future. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's been, been my experience as well. So did you consider online lessons with him? Um, and, and did you try lessons from anyone else? I considered online lessons, but it's much easier for me to absorb things when, when people are in the room. And I think online lessons and online resources are great. It's fantastic that there's been so much democratization of the chess literature um, through the internet. But in-person lessons are different. Just like going to a doctor is different from reading medical advice online, even if the medical advice is good, right? There's an element of trust and an element of an interpersonal relationship that you can just only achieve in real space and real time. Uh, And I just wanted to go see St. Louis uh, and witness the environment. And that was very worthwhile in the end. Um, Even though St. Louis isn't 
my favorite place in a lot of ways as I go into. Not the chess club itself, which is a wonderful place, but the city um, has some drawbacks. Yeah, which, um, uh, yeah, which, uh, yeah, we, I sometimes, I have to admit, sometimes, I mean, because they do so much, so many wonderful things for the chess world, and I have a lot of sort of St. Louis affiliated guests naturally, but yeah, I mean, it's good to, it's the, the full picture that you present of St. Louis is, uh, is illuminating. Well, it's it's one rendition of St. Louis. Yeah, it's, Louis I mean, it's your a, it's your experience. Yeah, St. Louis is a big place, and there are a huge variety of possible experiences. And I'm sure that like Rex Sinkfield has a very nice time living in St. Louis. Um, it's a troubled place. Um, there's a lot of class and and racial tension there, and it's had sort of a sort of a dark history at times and there's sort of the suburbs that are nice in the inner city which is not always as nice although there are many nice things about it and it's a complicated place um however when when you go to the chess club um it's not at all complicated it's just a tremendous place to absorb so many facets of the game so if you if you can make the trip i would recommend it i think if you're a chess uh, player that's what I say in the book, basically. I can't recommend it from a tourism perspective, but I can recommend it highly as a uh, as a place to study chess. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's it would be hard to go wrong. I actually have never been, but I mean, obviously, it's a uh, top of the list to to make it there um, as a, as a chess tourist. Um, and out of the out of all the tournaments that you played, Sasha, was there what was the weather from? From a chess perspective, com- I mean, and a tourist com- perspective combined, just like start to finish, what was the most enjoyable trip you had that you took um, in conjunction with uh, this, um, you know, this book and this uh, little um, burst of chess obsession? Well, I would single out the last two tournaments I play, um, which is I play one in, in India and in central India and in Hyderabad. Um, and another one at the end, I, I, the last tournament in the book is in LA. Both of those were, I won't say that the tournament in India was straightforwardly enjoyable, but it was highly memorable. Um, if you can make it to India, um, with all of the requisite vaccinations and taking all of the, um, important precautions that you should take when you're going there, I would highly recommend it as a trip. I mean, India is just sort of, it's tourist destinations like the Taj Mahal and, and stuff um, are, I think, overrated, but just like walking around in India and experiencing the general culture and meeting the people is is underrated. And my chess tournament there, a lot of unfortunate stuff happened, but um, it was a singular experience. It's something I'll never forget. And I learned some hard lessons there. I mean, that's that's one thing I would I would say about tournaments. One um, thing that recommends them. Um, they're, 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 you can learn some hard lessons very quickly and that's valuable. Um, and the tournament in LA, I love LA. Uh, I live there now and yeah. Uh, and the weather was good. I performed well. Um, the food was good. Um, you know, it was sunny and, and nice. And I met some, some very, uh, very kind players there. So that was a good experience. Cool. Well, I just wanted to mention the your line about the traffic and uh I'm 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 sure I'm mispronouncing the city, Hyperabad or however Hi Hyderabad. Um your line about the traffic made me laugh out loud. It was quite funny. Um 
But so uh, why did you move to L.A.? Um, well, uh, I'm engaged now. And, oh, congratulations. Uh, thank you. And uh, my fiance, um, who so, I should co- mention. Co-star is, of your book. No, actually, my fiance is neither of the two oh, women wow. who is mentioned in the book. So um, things, th- things change. I mean, the book is a portrait of my life at that time, right? Like three, right, yeah. two to three years ago now. So things have changed. Um, I am engaged um, to a woman named Victoria now. Um, things are going well. Uh, chess has not corrupted the relationship. <laughs> not yet, far. at least. Yeah. Not not yet. Things could things could happen. Actually, she's she's uh, she's taken it up and she is making rapid progress. Um, just out of feeling that she should uh, participate in in elements of my inner life, which is very nice. Um, so we live in LA um, largely because she's in in film and and television um she's an actress and a film producer and i am hoping to get into uh tv writing or broadcast writing in some capacity to some extent in the future and we both just love it la is um kind of a kind of a hard city to be a tourist in because it's very spread out but it's an absolutely fantastic city to live in i highly recommend it yeah i i'm I'm more of an East Coast guy, but I love visiting LA. I mean, I I, I definitely appreciate it. Um, and actually, you know, my knock was always the common knock of the traffic. But now, now that I'm a suburban dad, you know, I drive any, everywhere anyway. But mm-hmm. anyway, I mean, we're getting super off track. But the the <laughs> right. the one uh, last thing I would just say is if you know, uh, good luck with the transitioning to TV and film writing. But hopefully, you can get some chess Easter eggs into uh, anything that sees the light of day in in, in your your bright future. Well, uh, I've had um, one meeting and may have more about adapting um, the book for the screen in some way. So, wow, that's um, awesome! Yeah, it, it, it might be more than an Easter egg. I should also say I'm I'm working on another book, and it's not like I'm I'm just becoming a TV writer and living the the pure LA lifestyle. But yeah, I think I I, I don't think this is this is um, the last of my chess life. Good. Well, we look forward to more then. And yeah, I mean, hope to hope to see you at some point. I'm sure I and listeners will hope to bump into you at some point. But but once again, Sasha, I mean, before I let you go, I just want to congratulate you. I mean, it's heady stuff. Uh, having your first book published, getting married, I mean, getting this uh, very nice review in the Washington Post. And like I said, I definitely I, I, I give it a, a unequivocal endorsement to uh, to anyone listening who's sort of on the fence. Um, about buying it and it is i believe being re- the same day that this interview will be released the book should be available so um yeah thanks and is is there anything else uh you you'd like to say before we we let you move on sasha um maybe a couple of things um first uh, i would also unequivocally recommend buying it i think that is a good <laughs> yes. step uh, to take uh in life i think it is worth your entertainment dollar or i hope it is anyway if you purchase it based on um my endorsement and then it does not live up to your expectations feel free to contact me and we can talk about it um uh i just want to say it's 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 an honor um you're a very pleasant guy to chat with and joining the ranks of guests like Svidler and, and bereev has 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 really been a thrill so thank you awesome thank you and uh i don't know if you're uh, you're on social media you're on twitter right is there any other way that that people should try to keep up with you or is that the best way I'm on Twitter um, in a sense. I dislike it very much. I feel <laughs> that it is a bad medium um, for most people, especially people like me who don't communicate well in detached witticisms. Um, I like Instagram. 
Um, and my Instagram DMs are open. So if you add me and you want to chat about chess or anything else, um, that is one venue. Uh, I send out an email list every week. Um, I'm fond of keeping in touch with people that way. Um, because I can send out links and sort of share things I've been interested in. Uh, and you can just email me. I'm a pretty responsive guy. And, uh, if you'd like to chat about your own chess experiences, that's something I'm always happy to talk about. Uh, oh, you're going to regret this when you blow up, Sasha. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe when I achieve celebrity status, those, yes. those words may come back to haunt me, but we won't hold you to it. Yet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, congrats again. And, uh, yeah, good luck with the book tour and the public publication. Um, uh, and we look forward to seeing, uh, what, what else comes down the pike. Thank you. Um, this has really been a, a treat. Thank you. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Of course, that includes my producer, Matthew Passy, and Geert Vandervelt. Thanks for supplying the theme music, gear. I also want to thank everyone who helps spread the word about the show, whether it be by writing a positive review on Apple Podcasts or another platform, by telling a friend, by stopping a stranger on the street, social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Praising Perpetual Chess on all those things is helpful as well. But of course, most of all, I want to thank the people who help support the show financially. Without you guys, Perpetual Chess would not be possible. I want to give extra special thanks to the following people and entities. Chessable.com, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Apprentice Twitch Channel, Andrew Bach, Austin Clough, Benjamin Handelman, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, Dan O'Hanlon, I am Dimitri Schneider, Faraz Sawaf, Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Cromarty, Kelly Palmer, Lone Pine Chess, the Law Offices of Stuart Katz, the Seattle Chess Club, Sidney Andrews, Thomas Tachenko, and Todd Bryant. I also would like to give thanks to my Patreon and PayPal Perpetual Partners. They include, here comes the list, Andrew Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, FM Andre Terakov, Benjamin Handelman, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brett Zeldo, Brian Mullis, Chad Hilton, Chris Balcom, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Selecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach J's Chess Academy, David Kofer, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsburg, Dan Lucas of uschess.org, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Cramley of Chessable.com, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith, I am Alec Donnie Ariel, Fox Valley Chess Club of Aurora, Illinois, Frank Tortoris, MD, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barto, Giovanni Russo, Greg Natal, Hans Schutt, Harish Srinivasan, James Banastia, Jason Willem, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, J.J. Stranod, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, GM Josh Friedel, Kare Christensen, WGM Katerina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Gopalakrishnan, Laura Beljavsky, Lucio Casada Silva, Martin Knudsen, Matthew Passi, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, Miguel Araspide, my main man Moonmaster9000, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Nate Salon, Neil Bruce, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passi Passan, and Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Robert Steiner, Ryan Berg, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Steiner Lima, WGM Tati of Abrahamian, Thomas Stanix, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tomas Komanich, 
Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Victor Vrancouge, William Brock, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and last but not least, Zhivko Storyanov. Thanks, everyone, and I will catch you all next week. Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.